Hey, welcome to High Resolution. My name is Bobby Goshal. And I'm Jared Arandu. We're sitting down with 25 masters of the design industry, and we've been learning a lot for the past few weeks. We hope you've been loving these episodes. Today's guest is amazing. We're so excited to have him on board. We're going to talk about how the best companies in the world approach, communicate, and deploy design every single day. In this episode, we're speaking with Daniel Burka. Daniel is a design partner at GB. He's going to focus on how to build bridges at your company to help elevate design, how design is actually a scientific method, and the thinking behind the design sprint. And we're going to get into this episode after this quick partner message, so stick around. Thanks to Squarespace for their support. Whether you need a domain, a website, or an online store, make your next move with Squarespace. Visit squarespace.com and enter the code HIGHRESOLUTION, one word, for 10% off your first purchase. Daniel, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. All right. So first question, uh, what's one thing about design that's clear to you that you feel is not so clear to other people? Huh. So I get, I get this u- unique perspective where I'm working with a lot of different companies at once. And uh, I think one of the things that I've started noticing you know, more and more clearly as, as time has gone on is how little of design is done in Sketch or Photoshop or even in code and how much of design is done by figuring out relationships within your company and understanding the core business of kind of like, why does your business exist? Uh, you know, if designers can understand these things and understand the pressures, you know, the people they work with are under and where decisions are making from elsewhere, you know, decisions are coming from elsewhere in the organization, they're much more likely to be successful with their actual, you know, what they think of as design work. So what, what, what I like about that, actually, this might be a weird place to go to next, but um, you talked about relationships, so I completely agree with you on the software side. The relationship side, I, I think that tends to escape the, the, the modes of operation for designers day to day because you, you talk about politics a lot, right? Like a lot of design is just politicking, right? Creating the relationships with the right people inside of the company. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that. So first of all, what does politicking mean? And then what does that mean for how designers should operate day to day inside of the company? A big piece of when I talk about politics, obviously kind of lowercase p politics. Um, but a big piece of the, the politics to me is understanding kind of what the motivations for other people in your business are, right? If you go and talk to your CTO or your sales team or the customer service team and you ask them what keeps you up at night, You'll hear all these things that don't, you know, don't sound typically like design problems, but they're very design problems, right? And these are all the reasons why when you work in Sketch or Photoshop and you come up with something brilliant and you bring it to a meeting and you want to express your brilliance, it's why your ideas get shot down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not because people looked at it and like, you know, empirically could tell your design sucked. It's because they have other priorities. They have other things going on. And if your design doesn't speak to those priorities, you're going to end up doing a lot of uh, dead-end design work. Um, so what I encourage designers to do is to literally go ask that question. Go and sit with your head of sales and say, hey, like, you may not know what I do, that's fine, but like, I'm much more interested in what you do. Like, what, what does your team do? What stresses you out? What are your priorities for the next quarter? Like, you can ask it in really concrete terms. Like, what are, what are your OKRs for the next quarter? Um, you know, what are, what are the priorities for your team? And, this is very important because it'll inform kind of how decisions are made within your organization and make sure that you're actually working on the right types of design um, at the right time. So this is in lieu of going to someone with a design and saying, what do you think of this? This is about, tell me about yourself. This yeah, is more about that. Very much so. And I think um, you know, the best designers I know did that legwork six months ago. And now when they bring the designs you know, mm. to somebody, it's not like a shock to anybody and they um, can speak to those concerns because by the time you realize that you're running into a wall, it's too late to go and do that legwork of creating the relationships you need to create and gathering knowledge you need to gather in order to kind of ship something successful. Um, it's really frustrating to me listening to designers complain. You know, they're always like, oh, you know, no one listens to me or I made this great thing and no one cares and you're like, they, they want to throw another team under the bus of like it's suddenly their fault and you're like you're just not a good designer because you didn't do the work like mm. all that other stuff outside of sketch and photoshop and code like that's design mm. like if you're not doing it like you're only a 
one-third designer. Like, no wonder you're frustrated. So what, and what percentage of a designer's job is, say, away from a computer? Probably two-thirds. Two-thirds? Yeah, I mean, to pull a statistic out of my book. That's amazing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, in your experience, anecdotal statistics. Sure, I mean, why not? How much time do you spend in meetings? How much time do you spend in, you know, prior, I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> I completely agree, um, yeah. All of that's design. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of designers get frustrated because they feel like they don't get enough time to design. Yeah. I get it. You know, I feel that way too. You know, I wish I'd have more time to spend in, in sketch and, you know, creating interfaces. Um, but you have to remember that all these other things are your job too. Yeah. yeah. Well, outside of uh, building these relationships with these stakeholders, these non-designers, um, what's something else a designer can do to start showing the value that they can actually add to a different team? So I think one of the things designers can do to, to show value, um, there, there are kind of two things. One, one is to think about how you express the value of what you're doing, right? If you just talk about it in terms of aesthetics or this is better, right, like these kind of broad generalities, um, you're not going to be very successful. Uh, I think we can take some lessons from, from product management this way. You know, product's quite good at quantifying what they do. They're quite good at saying, like, we're going to increase the metrics on the conversion funnel to from 3% to 7%, you know? Like that's really measurable, it's a good goal. You know, designers say the same thing, but we say it in a much more emotional way. Like we wanna make users happier when they come through sign up, right? And both these things have a lot of value. I think, you know, Julie Zhu wrote a really good post on how can PMs work with designers and how can designers work with engineers, you know, this kind of, how can we all understand each other? Um, I think it's worth considering kind of how people phrase kind of the value of what they're doing and think of ways that are more business driven, you know, if, if you're in a capitalistic business, um, to think about how to express that value to people. Like, hey, we're gonna you know, increase sales, we're gonna increase conversion. Um, and, and think of it in, in a measurable way, but also express it in the designer's way of understanding that users aren't um, just like, you know, uh, uh, Kind of faceless beings that we're hoping will increase things. Like they're humans, and like this is one of the great values of design um, is, is you know to kind of humanize the decisions we're making. Uh, and the other way to drive a lot of value in a company, I think this is something I think about a lot, is there's ideas all over your company, right? And so whether you're in engineering or you're in product or you're in customer service or you're you know, the CEO, everyone's got these little inklings of ideas around a, a business, right? There are, you, know, you see this if you go around a company, you have lunch with people that are like, oh, if only we did X, you know, we'd be really successful. Or what if we tried you know, Y? You know, what, what would happen with, with users? You know, everyone's really interested in, in coming up with ideas. Even your finance team is, is coming up with product ideas. Um, and one of the things that frustrates everybody in your business is that those ideas, you know, these inklings are so loosely formed, you know, they're just being verbalized. You know, maybe somebody made a doc about it. But when I describe an inkling to you and you perceive it, we're actually talking about something different. You know, what you see is, is not what I'm seeing in my head. And this creates a lot of friction in a business. Right, because you know everyone feels like their ideas aren't being heard, or you just don't get my thing. You know, everyone's been in these meetings where they're like, "No, you just don't understand." Right, and I think one of the most valuable things design can do, and one of the things that politically works really well because it embeds you deeply in the organization, is to work with people, everybody in your organization who's coming up with these inklings, and help them give it shape. You know, design, one of the magic tricks of design is that we can make something appear realistic. You know, without a lot of work. You know, design is very good at faking things. Um, so when you come up with an idea, I can be like, Jared, you know, that's such an interesting idea. I think I understand it. Just give me a couple hours. You go and jump into Sketch and prototype it. And what I've made is almost certainly not exactly what you had in your head, but now we can talk about it, and now we can improve it and bring it closer to what you were envisioning, and then we can take it to a wider group of people, and now we can all debate it on its merits, mm. rather than you know, all trying to grok this kind of amorphous concept that yeah. you know, somebody came up with. I think that function, you know, it's just one thing designers can do, but I think it's one especially high leverage thing that design is uniquely positioned to do within organizations, and I'm, I'm 
a lot of successful designers I've seen in organizations are the, the person who sits in that meeting and doesn't say a whole lot and walks out of the meeting instead of getting all hot and bothered and debating things and just goes and prototypes kind of what they heard everyone saying. Yeah. And then when they come back to the, the group, suddenly they're at the center of the room, the center of attention, and they've got this, this thing now that we can all discuss and, and kind of unlock the team. So yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, so in that sense, they become like the intermediary, right? Like between, which is pretty fascinating. That's exactly Um, what I'm talking about. Yeah. So one thing I want to touch on there, and like I'm I'm still trying to like develop this question as I say it. Uh, You kind of touched on two scenarios. One scenario is you know the designer who is in the cafeteria, like the lunch, like wherever, like the team went out, and just hearing these random thoughts pop up, right? And they sit with the finance or the salesperson, explore that a bit, go back, come back, and like start developing an idea, right? Then you have the designer who's in the meeting um, for an existing project. Uh, For the latter group, it makes sense that you would want to go out and do this and come back because this was already prioritized for you or your team. Otherwise, you would not be in that meeting, right? For the former group, this is you kind of like taking this as like on yourself to like go explore this idea, right? Um, so I'm really curious, especially for junior designers, if they see this as an opportunity to like show value, how do they do this? How do they do that lunch route and not come off as if they're not actually focusing on their priorities at their job? That's a great question. Um, some of this is, one is like not caring too much. Like that's, it's fine. Like, you know, yeah. ask, you know, the, the, what is the adage? The uh, ask, ask for, for forgiveness, forgiveness rather than permission. permission. Yeah. Um, Generally speaking, that's a good idea, especially in the tech world. I think you can get away with that without getting slapped down too much. Um, But uh, the other part of it is if you really want to get buy-in for your idea is to go back to the first thing I was talking about, which is to understand what the priorities of the business are. Um, If you go and prototype something and you're like, oh, you know, like our car sales you know, app, the next thing we need is VR, and the finance team came up with this VR idea, and like, look, we prototyped it, and it works great on the gear, and like, you put it on someone's head, like, people might think that's cute, but they're gonna be like, screw you, like, it's not gonna drive sales, we can't get adoption, there's like a hundred reasons not to do that. Um, and then you'll get frustrated, because you're like, oh, no one listens to me, and it's like, people are much more likely to listen to you if you're prototyping the ideas that also fall on the prioritization roadmap. And if you're not doing that, like, don't get me wrong, go rogue. <laughs> like, knock yourself out, but also don't be frustrated when everyone else is you know, very, very difficult to convince. Uh, so you most, you know, if, if you think of it, you know, if you're a product manager, a head of product, you're hearing a thousand ideas and one of your key functions is to choose which ones are worth exploring. So it's a good idea as a designer to put yourself in their shoes and be like, oh, the head of product's probably the person I'm gonna need to convince with this. You know, is this the kind of thing that he or she is gonna, um, can, would they consider putting this on our priority list? Um, it's really frustrating to me, and this is good advice, I think, for, for young designers. Um, it always frustrates me when people uh, put themselves as employees. You know, they think of themselves first as like, kind of, oh, I'm just like, you know, somebody who does design. And you sit down with them and they're like, oh, I made this thing, do you think that's good on the priority list? And you just look at them and you're like, would you put it there? And like, it's like, it never occurred to them before. It's like, you know, to really be, you know, a great designer or great employee generally, I think, it's it's to stop thinking of yourself as um, just a staff member and like somebody who, you know, I'll just do my best and I'll let somebody else make all the decisions. But to start trying to guess, like, if I was in their shoes, what, what's the decision I would make? Put yourself in the driver's seat. Yeah. It sounds like, by the way, it sounds like the prototyping thing, right? Sitting in a boardroom, having a bunch of people around you that aren't designers debate something that they're all seeing a little differently in their minds and your ability to go back and create, like, manifest something that everyone can look at. Do you see that as the ultimate olive branch? To add to like everyone else in the company, like is that is that like the best that the designer can do for people in a company? Yeah, you can either call it an olive branch or call it like an underhanded move to <laughs> to gain influence. <laughs> sure, um, you know I like that you phrase it in a nice positive way. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's one of the sneakiest things you can do that actually is really good yeah. for a business. Um, you know, because people won't. You know, by the time you walk in with that object in your hands. Yeah. 
like people get so distracted by the thing that they're not like upset with you for having come up with it, you know? Right. Like, and, and one of the great things, you know, I've found this to be extremely effective, even if this sounds really manipulative. Um, one of the great things is if you're a CEO or your product person or your you know, head of engineering or you know, some, some, somebody above you basically has come up with an idea and it's just an okay idea, but you're like, oh, it's like almost aligned with like kind of where I was thinking about taking things. If you prototype their idea, mm. like I would literally do their idea. Don't don't just prototype your concept. You know, when I was working with with Kevin Rose, for instance, yeah. I would always prototype Kevin's idea, yeah. and then I prototype my idea, which was like related to it. I'd be like, oh, Kevin, you know, here's this great idea. You know, I really liked it. Here it is. But if we change it in these other ways, like this is where we could really go. Yeah. And the genius of it is the leader thinks that's their idea because like, you know, I guess they had some kernel of it. Um, And so it's like this kind of tricky way to bring everyone along and make them feel like they're bought in. Mm -hmm. Because it's not, you know, Daniel or Jared, you know, coming in and like presenting their idea because people get, um, you know, their egos get get crushed a little bit with this. But if it's, oh, you know, Jim, I took your idea and um, I ran with it. And look what it looks like if we, you know, make a few adjustments to it. Yeah. Jim's like, all of a sudden, it's you and Jim pushing that idea together. Yeah, um, it's a very, it's a very yeah, it's, good it's, way it's, to actually being, get things done. It's being additive to what they thought was the right yeah. move, as opposed to being prescriptive yeah. to what you thought was the right. And even move. if you do something that's radically different from theirs, yeah. if you're like, Jim, here's your idea. Here's the shortcomings in it. Now that we can see it, we mm. can see that it's got shortcomings. We can both agree to this. You know, as long as Jim has the humility to agree to that. Yeah. And then be like, but here's the other idea. It's still like, oh, we tried this avenue. You know, it wasn't successful. That's fine. At least we tried it. You know, the 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 risk is if you never try people's ideas, they'll always think it was a good idea, right? Because sure. they're like, oh, yeah. I have that idea yeah. sitting in the back yeah. of my head, yeah. and I like regret yeah. Yeah. that we never tried it. Um, whereas prototyping is this cheap way to fail quickly, right? It's like, oh, you know, I can see it. Now I see the you know what's wrong with it, and now I can pivot off to something else, either you know an improvement to it or something totally different. Very very effective. We're going to talk a lot about function, um, but I, I actually want to spend a second on form. What is the right time for designers to focus on the look and feel of a thing? Um, what I think about form, I, I heard a quote years and years ago. I think um, uh, Josh Porter is a designer up in, in Boston. Um, posted this Shaker quote uh, a long time ago, you know, the, the sect of the yeah. Quakers. Um, and they, they make that really beautiful, really simplistic furniture, right? That they're famous for. And there's a Shaker quote that said, uh, don't make anything unless it's necessary. But if it's necessary, don't hesitate to make it beautiful. And uh, that That's always great. resonated with me. It's like, That's awesome. you know, make sure you're designing the right thing. You know, you know, one of the dangers of being a designer is we can make Lots of kind of mediocre ideas look attractive. Um, So be careful of not like even convincing yourself that something's great just because you slapped a really beautiful gradient on it and like a cool name. Um, But fundamentally go and try to validate your idea. And if your idea can't stand up even if it's just okay looking, you know, not perfect looking, it's probably not that good idea to begin with. Um, So focus on on making sure you're doing the right thing. Um, And then I have this... Um, when I think about aesthetics, I, I often think of it much more in terms of um, achieving the right objective as opposed to making something that looks good. Um, designers are very, very fond of thinking that the world needs to be beautiful. Um, and maybe it does. You know, I'm, I'm a bit torn on this, to be honest. I'm, I'm not sure I've got a, a clear opinion on it. But functionally, from a capitalist you know, business perspective, when I look at Walmart, and it's gray and burgundy and navy blue. And, uh, you know, a big part of me is like, oh, Target looks way better, right? From a graphic design perspective, Target is much more just attractive, right? I mean, the typography is better, the colors are better. Um, but you've got to admit that if you stand on the roof of this building and look around and you saw Walmart, you'd be like, you know, it's two miles away. And I'd be like, there's cheap things in that building. Yeah. Uh, that is the effect the designers were going for. It's extremely effective. Mm. Um, so if your goal is to build credibility or to um, you know, show that something is affordable, um, making something beautiful, you know, beautiful in, in the you know, designer's sense it isn't, uh, isn't always the right thing to do. 
So you know, I want to be careful. Little... The you know aesthetics is aesthetics. It's not necessarily yeah. beauty. Yeah. So it's it's make sure they love it when it's ugly, and then you'll know they'll love it when it's beautiful. Like is that? No, that's not quite what no. I'm saying. No I, one I to make saying, it beautiful. Well, I'm saying that on the one hand, focus on that you're making the right thing, even if it's just okay looking, yeah. right? It's not necessarily ugly, just, you know, just Loosely functionally it works, yeah. right? But the, the second point I'm making is that making something beautiful isn't necessarily even the goal when you're focusing on aesthetics. Like focusing on something that communicates the message you're trying to get across is, is the message, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Walmart choosing those colors I think is quite effective. Yeah. I'd never describe it as beautiful. Fair. Um, and that's true of like, you know, I worked with a, a uh, we invested in a site that made coupons. Um, one of the designs that we worked with our team on was quite, you know, improve the, the you know, uh, the aesthetics. You know, it looked prettier. Typography was better, the colors were better, uh, spacing was better. Um, it, in testing, it totally bombed. Like, people mm. did not believe that they could get a deal on this site because it looked too pretty. Right? You know, if, if a site's kind of a bit hacked together, you're much more likely to expect a discount. Yeah. Um, it's like the same case with Craigslist. Craigslist so, tested yeah, their website man, multiple times. and It looks like a flea market. Yeah, you wouldn't, and that's the goal. You wouldn't want to go to a flea market that's like perfectly designed. You know, you wouldn't want to go to a farmer's market that looks like Disney World, yeah. right? Like there's something about the grittiness of it that makes you believe in it. So... No one to make it beautiful. I think focus on the right aesthetic for the right problem yeah. is, is probably... You know, for the right objective, I guess, is, is probably more specifically what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Can you expand on the idea that design done right can be a scientific method for a business? Sure. So this is something I've been thinking about for, for the last year or so. One of my colleagues, John Zaratsky, said this in, in a meeting, and I was like, oh my God, like that really resonates with me. Like, why? And I started thinking about it. Um, one of the things you see really commonly in businesses is, is that there's a lot of uncertainty, right? We think we're headed in the right direction, but if we make this change, how will it affect our user base? How will we, you know, in six months' time, will we be able to go out and raise a new venture fund? And, you know, um, technically is something possible? There's all these questions in, in businesses, right? And the way that we you know, there's kind of a few ways we generally solve them. Like, one, we look into the past and try to figure out, like, has anyone solved this problem before or someone run to the situation before and can we kind of predict what might happen from the past? Um, the problem with solving things that way is that, uh, you know, the context has changed, right? So if someone had tried, you know, um, doing a certain photography application before, before mobile phones, well, holy shit, you know, like, you know, like Flickr, for instance, you could look at Flickr solved the problem, but then mobile phones came along and like everything changed. So like you have to remember that, you know, technology changes, society changes, you know, so it's really, it's a tricky thing to look to the past to, to inform our business decisions. Um, the other common way that we, we solve things is to kind of debate it out. And then, you know, we sit in these stupid meetings where everyone's like, oh, users will do X or users will do Y. And, and that's always really frustrating because, like, nobody, you know, the longer I've been doing design, I've been designing for, like, 20 years, and, like, all you learn is, like, nobody know, nobody can really predict what users will do. It's, um, it's, it's you know, kind of a fool's errand. Uh, and so we intellectually, you know, try to figure out a problem. We try to look to the past. Um, uh, we look to other experts kind of thing. So we'll go off, you know, talk to your, you know, advisors about kind of how they've solved something and, you know, they come with their own confirmation bias. Um, anyway, there's lots of, lots of uncertainty in a business, right? And, and you see this in, in kind of every team in a, in a company and we, we do a lot of uh, talking about it. And I think one of the great values in design is this kind of coming back to this prototyping idea I was talking about earlier is that if you can take an idea that we're all debating the, the merits of and prototype it and then go and actually test it with customers, you can create this loop very, very quickly of, oh, had an idea, you know, a thesis is like the scientific method, create an experiment, you know, the prototype, test it with customers. All of a sudden we're going from like very low certainty about whether or not we're making the right decision to more certainty that, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's like any small experiment. It's, you know, a pretty small sample set, but 
you know, I'm gen we're te generally testing with you know five customers, ten customers. Um, you can go from you know having a, you know very low certainty to at least some directional certainty about you know whether or not the idea has any merit. Um, and this, to me, is like you know the scientific method where instead of just shooting in the dark all the time, investing a lot of effort in these long form experiments of getting something out in the wild and measuring it, you know, the typical agile method of, of development, um, we can create much tighter loops, mm -hmm. right? It's big loop, three, four months of launching something, measuring the, the metrics on it, trying to do some, some uh, field analysis with, you know, to get uh, uh, more um, uh, qualitative analysis rather than quant. Um, you can do these things, it takes you months, and it's very, very expensive. Design can be this scientific method that is much more rapid, and much more um, quick little experiments to make sure that we're actually you know, directionally uh, being successful. Thanks again to Squarespace for supporting this show. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to get a domain, create a website, or build an online store. They offer domains with SSL certificates and Whois privacy that you can seamlessly connect to your Squarespace website or online store. They take care of everything for you. Nowadays, your domain is your online identity. It's the first thing people see when they visit your site. It helps build credibility, and honestly, it just makes you look more professional. So why mess it up? Squarespace offers an easy way to find a domain that works for you or your business. They even host it for you, all in one place. So if you've been thinking about getting a domain for your new project or personal site, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code HIGHRESOLUTION, that's one word, to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. We'd also like to thank our friends at Envision for their support. Envision is the world's leading product design platform, powering the future of digital design through their understanding of the importance of collaboration. They're used by some of the most innovative companies in the world, like Facebook, Capital One, Netflix, and Airbnb. I work with remote teams all the time, and I found that keeping a healthy dialogue is really important. Without it, building strong work relationships gets a lot harder, and that leads to poor collaboration. I've also found that prototypes are a great way for me to show my full vision for a design, and this helps cut down a lot of back and forth. Envision makes all of this really easy. You can rapidly prototype your designs and collaborate across every stage of your project, taking your ideas from concept to code. It simplifies virtually every aspect of the design workflow and makes collaboration a core part of the process for everyone, from project managers to designers, developers, and writers. Teams that build digital products are at a serious advantage when they use Envision's suite of prototyping and collaboration tools. It's the best way to get everyone on board. Visit envisionapp.com slash high resolution for three months free. Tell us what the design sprint is. So our team, so I, I work with, um, at, you know, at Google Ventures. So we, you know, invest in, in quite a few companies, about 300. 300 odd companies at this point um, across a huge range of industries. And, um, <laughs> hey, Ursula. Um, we brought a guy on our team, Jake Knapp, who had been running design sprints at Google. And he had been uh, kind of trying to find a way to help teams move more quickly at a big company. And, uh, and Braden Coetz, who's one of the other designers on my team, had seen what Jake was doing and was like, oh, you know, I think that would apply extremely well to startups. Um, so Jake's been working on this, this, um, this idea of creating a five-day process for testing and validating big ideas. And, you know, we've all been doing a lot of sprints, you know, some, like 120 sprints at this point, uh, with portfolio companies. And, uh, it's coming back to, you know, these ideas that we were talking about earlier about the scientific method of business. I think the, a sprint, the real value of a sprint is to look at a big problem and then go and be able to look at patterns of how people solve similar things before, do ideation in a really healthy way, you know, instead of this typical um, bullshit brainstorming process, um, to kind of bring out the best of everyone's expertise in the room, um, is to you know, uh, do ideation, do a healthy decision-making process about which ideas have the most potential, do rapid prototyping, so we prototype in a single day, um, fairly complex prototypes in a single day, and then we go and test with five customers. So it's this very, you know, it's, it's a bit structured. I know it sounds a bit uh, bullshit consultancy, um, but we found it to be an extremely effective way of 
helping teams who are in kind of deep production mode all the time mm -hmm. to stop, look at the big picture, measure kind of like where the biggest potential or the biggest risks are to their team, do a little bit of measurement. Are we headed in the right direction? Is there a potential product we could build here or a change we can make? Measure whether or not that's a good idea and then go into their, their typical development cycle. Hmm. I, after reading the book, I've tried it a few times. It worked really well. Um, the thing that stood out to me is in order for the design sprint to work, you need to know what the problem is that you're trying to solve. I'm very curious what you do to problem find before you go into the sprint or what are these startups that you work with? What did they do to, to find problems before you go into the sprint? Sure. I mean, it's a great question. It's, it's, um, it's one of the biggest risks to a sprint is if you're not working on the right problem, you're not likely to be successful in the end. And when I mean successful, I mean like, are you going to ship a successful product? Yeah. Um, way that we help teams evaluate problems is actually surprisingly simple. Um, you would think that, you know, sometimes, sometimes we get really sophisticated and go do a bunch of user research first and really try to identify where the problems are. So like the master class, if you've got a full-time researcher on your team, is to go deep on, on research yeah. to really kind of know the problem space extremely well. But we don't always do that. Um, more frequently, what the way it works is that maybe two weeks, three weeks before a sprint. So we kind of you know, are planning the sprint already, like blocking off time in our calendars. And then two or three weeks before the sprint, we'll sit down with leadership. CEO, head of product, um, you know, the, basically the people who are really driving the roadmap and the decisions uh, in the company. And we'll ask them, what are your OKRs? What are the big things that are keeping you up at night? You know, where are the biggest risks or the biggest potential opportunities in your business where you've got questions around them, right? And usually, you know, risk is huge questions, right? Like if we do this thing, we've got, you know, got this product idea, but if no one likes it, we'll fail. Or if our current user base, you know, throws up on it, we'll go out of business. Or, you know, there's, there's usually those types of risks. And then there's also these, these ideas of potential, like this, if we swing for the fences and make this thing, like, that could be amazing for our business, but we're not likely to do it because it would be a big investment of our time, right? So those types of questions, um, and we're usually operating on a very tight time schedule. We're not doing blue sky thinking. You know, I've seen a lot of teams try to apply sprints to like, what does the future look like? Um, it's not particularly useful for that. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use it for that. Uh, I'd more look six months out, you know, like, what are you hoping to ship in six months and where's the big risk in that? Um, or what are the ideas that have been floating around that have never really been tried because they're too risky? Um, and, and maybe consider prototyping those, things you might actually do. Um, it's quite good for this type of pragmatic product roadmap, you know, you know kind of opportunity analysis, I guess. Mm. The, key, the key is to ship. That, like you don't the, the whole point of not doing blue sky thinking and doing a six month timeline to ship is that you want to build something that gets out into the world. I mean, we are investors, uh, <laughs> so I, I work at a venture capital firm. Yeah. The businesses that we invest in, we are hoping that they will be successful as businesses, and that you know, the quickest path to there is by making good decisions. You know, every few months when they make their big bets, um, and so. You know, it, it might be a bit different if you work at a, a massive company where you know you you're you're thinking you know much more you know if you've got a resident futurist on staff like maybe you're thinking differently and, and maybe you can be more creative in how you apply a sprint. But for us, we're very pragmatic about it. You know, when we measure the success of a sprint, it's did we get enough data to make a good decision? And six months later, when we ship the product, did we get similar results to what we anticipated from the sprint? Um, you know, if the product never ships, I consider the sprint to be a, well, if, the, if a good idea from the sprint never ships, uh, I would consider that to be a failure mm. of the sprint. You know, maybe we didn't focus on the right thing or we didn't convince the right people that, you know, a good idea was a good idea. Um, so, yeah, very, very, like, hard-nosed about why we use a sprint. Um, and a good, another good way to look at it, maybe, about choosing the right problem is, um, 
you know, one of my colleagues has this, he loves saying the phrase, uh, start at the end, mm. right? And so in a, you know, a concrete way, what he really means is if you come up with an idea, you know, here's a problem space we're considering, and if five users came in and they all said X about it, what would we do? If you can't answer that question before you start the sprint, like you're probably doing the wrong thing, right? Because what you're really saying is like five users of this type, you know, if we can get five sports fans to come in and they all like say that they this concept is great, you know, that they're this is better than the thing we had before, and we go and ship it, you know, that'll be good for our business. If you can't say that confidently, like don't work on that problem. So business leaders, well, some business leaders and designers have a compulsion to uh, jump to the first solution without any proper vetting. Yeah. Um, and one of the things I really like about Design Sprint is this emphasis on exploring multiple ideas and then focusing in once you have some sort of validation, right? Um, now, some designers are lucky enough to work on teams where they've at least heard of the concept or heard of something like similar and getting people to buy into this concept, especially non-designers, is not that hard. Um, but I assume that more often than not, that's not the case, right? right. Um, so what are some ways, very simple things that a designer can do um, if they actually want to decide to do this thing to get buy-in from these non-designers? Sure. Um, so if you want to get buy-in, the first thing I wouldn't do is try to pitch somebody on doing a five-day consultancy-style project. Because yeah. um, you know, even the startups I work with, um, getting five days with you know six or seven people in a room seems wasteful. Um, so I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't call it a sprint. Uh, I wouldn't call it, you know, I would kind of avoid any of the things that sound like you're kind of doing a process. Uh, the first thing I would do to build credibility is just to start prototyping. You know, like it's not going to be perfect, but if you can go and take your CEO's idea or your head of product's idea and prototype it and then get it in front of customers and come back with that evidence to, you know, to that person you'll start building credibility with at least one person. You're like, hey, here's the value of user research because I went and did it. And like, maybe it's going rogue and doing some, you know, kind of gutsy, scrappy guerrilla research on the weekend, um, which, you know, I'm not gonna recommend is like your long-term solution. But as, as a first step to just building credibility and even just building your muscles of doing prototyping and research, that's a really good first step. And to your point of, the value of sprints is trying more than one idea. Um, potentially prototype their idea and prototype you know another version. Um, you know we do this a lot where we'll do kind of kind of head-to-head -head comparison of things, um, and we'll just slap on like kind of fake brands onto things. Just call it Omni Finance and mm. you know like Dollar Tree or something. That's a real company. That's a real <laughs> uh, Dollar Plan. Not a sponsor. Not a go. sponsor. <laughs> uh, is that like a dollar store? Yeah, yeah. Dollar Tree is a dollar yeah. store, yeah. Um, but anyway, come up with two, two separate brands for them both that aren't your brand and go and test them with customers. Ideally, come back with like a little bit of video or something so they can see like a real customer actually using their product because um, you have to be a real cold-hearted jerk not to watch a real customer stumble on your idea and yeah. still think it's a good idea. Um, but kind of low investment, don't expect them to read a big report, do yeah. kind of bullet point analysis. Um, and, and use that to build your credibility and then be like, you know, potentially start using some of the other techniques that, that we use in sprints, stuff like um, the next time you run a meeting, do dot voting, for instance, when you're trying wow. to, you know, solve a problem, which is, you know, if you're trying to come up with like kind of, say you're working on an identity and you're trying to come up with like the values for your company, everyone sits around in a meeting and just starts shouting out stuff. And it's really frustrating and really inefficient and lets the loudest voices win. It's a really dysfunctional way to run a meeting. Have everyone write down their things on a piece of paper. You know, what are the values for our company? Write them all on the whiteboard, you know, with little numbers next to them. And then get everybody, you get five votes. Vote on the ones you think are the most appropriate. All of a sudden you get this like nice heat map that actually takes everyone's uh, real intellectual ability. You know, you stopped you've actually thought about it, you've considered all of the options, and you make a decision, bring a technique like that to a meeting, that's successful. Do something like quiet ideation. You know, I was just talking to a designer the other day, and she said um, whenever she runs a meeting, all the engineers start yelling out ideas, and it's, um, 
nobody ever lands on anything. And I was like, oh, you're kind of doing it wrong. Like really give everybody a you know, piece of paper or some post-it notes and get everybody quietly for 15 minutes just to write down their, you know, try to draw their concept. It doesn't have to be, you know, doesn't have to look like Leonardo da Vinci, but it's amazing when you think of how much time you spent in a company, how few times you've had 15 minutes of quiet time to actually put a little bit of form around your idea and then try to express it to everybody else. Mm. It's like you start taking some of these things and people will start noticing that they're effective yeah. and that their old way of working is a bit dysfunctional. And then you'll be like, listen, like the master class for this is doing something like a sprint. Um, there are other processes too, yeah. but, um, but a sprint's a, a good, good way to do this. And then, you know, potentially you can get everybody to do it maybe even as like a, you know, team building experiment kind of yeah. thing. Just make sure you work on a real problem. And then once they've seen it once, hopefully you've built up the credibility to go and do it on a regular basis. So if I was to tease away the big takeaway here, it's don't start with jargony words. Don't sell, don't try and sell an entire sprint and piecemeal it while showing them progress along the way. So maybe you take the prototyping day and you do it yourself, or you take the dot voting day and you do it with a few people, and then eventually you build enough credibility to say, to show them, this is the process actually should be five days and you need to be in the room for a few of these days. And then that's how you get the people back into the mindset of wanting to do these design sprints. That's a good summary, yeah. Okay. Um, what kind of problem is a bad problem to solve on the design sprint? One of the things I've seen that teams, there are kind of uh, two classes of problems I've seen that, that teams sometimes gravitate towards that are, are generally not good problems for sprints. Um, one is your typical design problem, right? Like when we get approached by teams, they're often thinking, you know, they, they, you know, we used to call them design sprints all the time. And so the, the minute they hear the word design, they're like, oh, we'll solve our interface problems. And you're like, yeah, I, I can help you solve interface problems. Like I'm a pretty good interface designer, but like the real meat here is solving your business problems. Like, you know, big product challenges, big like pricing problems, stuff like, you know, conversion funnels, um, stuff that's like really core to the business. So make sure you're not working on just solving usability problems. There's, you know, doing usability testing is great. You should do lots of usability testing. I wouldn't use five days to do that. Sure. I would make, you know, it's kind of later in the production cycle. Do, do some production work, run, you know, do some research. Um, very, very useful, but, but not necessarily a five-day project. Um, and the other one is to avoid really blue sky thinking. I, I think the teams, designers in particular, are, you know, I think a lot of designers learned in art school um, that if you're not working on, like, deep conceptual work, that you're kind of not doing it right. And that, you know, you know, they kind of jump from, you know, I see lots of teams that are focused right on production, right? And then it's almost like they kind of um, over counter that by instead of working on strategic work, they go all the way to like conceptual. And they're just like, whoa, what if the world was completely different? <laughs> like what if cars didn't have to have their wheels on the road? Like <laughs> well, it would be totally different. Right. Yeah. And like, that's fun. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I like, you know, ideating about like, you know, moon bases too, but um, but it's not measurable in a way that a sprint is really helpful with. Um, so if you can't kind of um, figure out how you would measure the success of something, um, it's probably not a great uh, use of a sprint. Um, you know, like uh, some ad agencies I've met with. Uh, I met with a, a big ad agency a couple years ago, and they were like, oh, we want to do sprints for this project. And I was like, oh, what's your project? And they're like, oh, it's a microsite for this big beer brand. And I'm like, well, how? what's successful about the microsite? And they're like, well, impressions? And I'm like, how are you going to measure impressions in a user study? Like, a microsite's like, it's not a functional thing. It's just like loose brand experience thing. Um, yeah, obviously you can see what I think of microsites, but uh, <laughs> but you know we're much more frequently doing things where it's a bit more functional. Um, so yeah. So while we're on the topic of uh, measurable outcomes, um, walk us through your process for uh, testing at the end of these sprints, right? Like who chooses these people, um, and what's your preferred mode of testing? So 
what we're doing in a design sprint is almost always doing five one-on-one studies. So this isn't like some focus group mm-hmm. bullshit or, or whatever. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a pretty small group of people, right? So we do five studies. It's um, enough to give you credible evidence. Um, and it's the kind of the maximum number of people we can do in one day with one researcher. Um, and so what we do is on the first day of the sprint, we're kind of figuring out the problem space that we're going to be working in. And on the very first, on the Monday, we're already figuring out, like, who are we going to have to do the study with? Like, who, you know, it's usually either, you know, this larger audience that if we can solve for, like, we'll know that we you know, have a big, a big enough group or you know, something like, you know, is it early adopters? And even if, if we can't even get them to pick it up, like we know we're really screwed. Um, you know, it's a big generalization, but it, it's, we think of it like that often. Um, and so we'll think about you know, whichever company it is, like who represents that group and how can you, um, like what, what are the red flags that would indicate someone's not appropriate, right? So, if we're working with oncologists, you have to figure out like, okay, if they work in community oncology, great. If they work at a research hospital, like that, that things are totally different at a research hospital, we wouldn't work with, you know, they wouldn't, their feedback wouldn't be helpful. Or, you know, in a really simplistic way, like we work with blue bottle coffee, mm. if you're just a tea drinker, like, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not gonna pick you. If you roast your own beans, you're probably not appropriate for our study either. We're looking for somebody who, you know, buys coffee, you know, has bought something that's not Folgers before, um, you know, maybe isn't that familiar with Blue Bottle, right? Um, so we'll, what we do is, and this is again extremely generalized, there are some articles on our, on our website if, if you're really serious about getting into this, um, but what we do is we put out um, a survey, so you, you know, if it's a consumer thing, we'll put it out in Craigslist a lot of the time if we're working in the United States, um, and it's like, you know, we'll pay you $100 to come do a user, bill, you know, a, a user study. If you're interested, please fill out this form. And the form, uh, the survey, has a bunch of questions buried in it. So we wouldn't ask, like, if we're doing a study for Blue Bottle Coffee, the first question isn't, do you drink coffee? Mm. It's like, you know, what is your, you know, what do you have for breakfast in the morning? And we'd list, you know, 15 things. And if they cross, you know, check coffee, like, cool, we know they're a coffee drinker. Because um, you just want to bury the lead a little bit so you don't get people who are just trying to get their hundred bucks. Yeah. Um, we'll have a bunch of questions like that down down the list. Um, you know, uh, so we're we're selective, fairly selective, because a good way to think about it is if a user who looked like X came in and said something strong about what we're doing, like, would you just dismiss it? Yeah. Right? Because that's a big risk in doing a sprint. Is if you're if you don't have the right users in the room. Um, leaders, you know, like strong personalities in the room will sometimes dismiss the results of the sprint. So like, oh, you know, we did this, but like, you know, the oncologists we had in there, you know, the, none of them were Ivy League. And you're like, oh, well, it turns out Ivy League is important. Like, we should have recruited for that. You know, like, where did you get your degree from? Um, you know, I'm just pulling examples out of my, um, uh, out of my butt here. But, um, but you, you want to think of it that way. Like, who would we need to hear from to know if this is going to be successful and then figure out, like, a simple survey to, to, to do this. Um, so we put it out there on Monday. We commit already that they're going to come in on Friday, so it kind of lights a, lights a fire under, under us. Um, and so it's a little, I mean, the first few times you do this, it's a little scary because, like, you barely know the problem space. You've already invited five people to come in. We have no idea what solution we're going to make, let alone, like, what form the prototype is going to take, um, and uh, yeah, now you got to be get something done in four days in order to have something uh, ready for nine a.m. on on Friday. Now let's say we get to Friday and we test, and the results are a failure. I hesitate to use that word because I don't necessarily know what that means in this instant. But let's say we didn't meet the goals of the sprint. Yeah. Um, how do you help? the business people and other designers here contend with maybe a shaky confidence issue, right? So if the sprint fails them for some reason or um, they weren't able to complete the prototypes in time or whatever, like how do you how do you help them get past the hump and say, listen, we got to try this again. Here's what we missed. Okay, let's define failure. Because yeah, when exactly, I think yeah. of it, when we do a sprint and you know all five customers hate the prototype, that's not a failure. That's you know we learned a lot, 
right? Sure. It's like you either, you know, somebody said you either win or you learn mm -hmm. <laughs> about a sprint. Um, so I wouldn't consider that to be a failure. Okay. Um, that's, that's, you know, you just learn something about your users. You learn that that idea you're about to commit three months of engineering to is not a good idea. Okay, let's like come up with more ideas and do this again, right? Um, and I would consider that to be a huge win, right? It would have been a massive waste of, of effort and uh, money to, to go and pursue that idea. Where design sprints aren't successful, like, you know, people don't believe the results or um, you didn't finish the prototype. Um, it's hard for me to talk about this because we've done it enough times that we're generally successful in that we finished the sprint and got credible results. Um, I have talked to, um, I've talked to like some really senior designers who you know I respect, and they're like, "Oh, you guys are cheating because you guys are really good," mm -hmm. and like, of course you can finish a prototype in one day. And I'm like, oh, "Not really." Like, don't get me wrong, I'm a pretty good designer. Like, I've made a lot of interfaces, but a lot of it is about, you know, the one day for doing a prototype isn't about being like the best designer in the world. It's about prioritizing. Like, what are you actually trying to learn? And it's certainly not like, will people click on this button if it looks perfect? You know, it's like, if we have a button and it's got this text on it, will anybody understand what the hell is going on here is more likely what you're really trying to learn. Um, so we're often working in these kind of mid-fidelity tools. So, you know, working Keynote or yeah. like Sketch, but just using like, you know, like some oh, basic yeah. template templates, not outlines. It looks like an interface, but it doesn't look like the best interface gotcha, you've ever gotcha. seen. Yeah. You don't want to work in like this fidelity where it looks like um, looks like a wireframe because yeah. when your customers come in, you want them to think it's like a real website. Yeah. But like, I think every visual designer should do some sprints and do more user studies yeah. and realize how little visual design can paper over a bad idea. Yeah. Don't be wrong. Visual design, exquisite visual design, has a place, but make sure you're making the right thing first um, because. You know, like like we did a, a video, for instance, with uh, Slack when we were helping them with their out of box experience. We shot a like an you know like that typical video on a home page that explains the product. We shot one of those in a single day, along with doing the rest of the prototype. And you know, sure, we've got a videographer on our team, and you know, he's got a nice DSLR. But like, a, we spent three quarters of the day writing a decent script, set up the camera. And one of our one of my colleagues actually pretended he was Stuart Butterfield, who's the CEO of Slack, and he goes, Hi, I'm Stuart Butterfield. I'm sick of email. Aren't you sick of email too? That's great. And like it was really funny. But like, of course, none of the customers knew. You know, like they don't know who Stuart is, they'd never heard of Slack. And to them, like, it was just a promotional video. They didn't know this was made in a single day. And it certainly didn't have the polish that I'm sure your video team would put on it, you know, if they had weeks. But we, we learned very clearly which messages resonated with them in that video and which ones didn't. And now if we went and made a real video, we'd, we'd be able to um, invest our time in the right places. Um, so I think, you know, where you see teams fall down, it's usually about prioritization and... Um, you know, making sure you're working on the right problem, making sure that something like the prototype is actually focused on, on answering those questions that you had at the beginning of the sprint as opposed to looking like a production prototype. Sure. You know, like this is, you're prototyping to answer questions. You're not prototyping to, um, you know, to win any design yeah, award. this isn't Dribbble. Yeah, no this doubt. Is, this, this is, is pretty far away yeah. from Dribbble. Yeah. We need to move to community ca uh, questions next, but before we do that, I actually have a personal question for you. You're spending all of your time now between companies uh, that Google Ventures has invested in, um, which means you're context switching week to week. You're solving different problems every single week. Do you miss solving a single problem for a single product? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I definitely do. I feel more and more. I've been doing this for like four years now at GV. Um, you know, and before that, I was like, I co-founded you know a couple of companies, and uh, what I really miss is owning the problems. You know, it's it's really fun to jump in and help other people solve their problems, yeah. but there's um, a gravity to solving your own problems where like it really matters to you. You know, and like don't get me wrong, like I'm I'm you know we invest in these companies and I'm you know personally invested in their success, um, so I take it very seriously. But when it's your problem to solve, and when you're the one who's going to not just have to ideate, but to actually ship the thing and then measure the results and kind of sink or swim with them. Um, 
that's fun. I mean, it's stressful. I don't, I don't forget how hard it was to run a business. Um, but that stress is, you know, I, I, I miss that energy a little bit. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. It's, it's hard. I mean, it's really hard. Do you do side projects or anything to like keep yourself afloat here? Like what? Yeah, I hacked on like a little project with my brother last year. Oh, that's awesome. My twin brother, that's and great. he's an engineer. And uh, Kevin Rose and I recently collaborated with uh, a friend of his, Caleb, on a, a fasting app. Awesome. You know, but they're a little dinky, you know, like um, I, I, I miss a bit working on like a big, hard, you know, kind of multifaceted, long-term problem. Like running startups is fun. Yeah, it is. It's addicting. I mean, it's heart attack inducing, yeah. but it's fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we're, we're going to move to community questions next. Basically, here's what we've done. We reached out to the community and we asked them what questions are kind of burning up inside them. What, what's the stuff that they're thinking about right now? We picked five questions um, and we will start with the first question. How do you explain the role of design to people in your business? Oh, boy. Um... I have a weird business. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I work in a you know, several billion dollar venture capital company. Yeah. Um, it's it's weird for us cuz um on the one hand we don't I don't do as much design work for GV, you know, I'm mostly outward facing working with our portfolio companies. You know, I, I design our website and like help design our identity and stuff like, you know, like kind of the the obvious things that normal designers do. Um but uh, but most of my time spent kind of doing consultancy, and I also there's no junior designers on our team. Like we're all a bunch of old farts, seasoned. Um, seasoned. Yeah, that's a polite <laughs> way of putting it. Um, but we've all been you know designing for 15, 20 years. Uh, so you know we kind of get some built-in credibility, which is nice. You know, it's like hey, you did that thing I've heard of. Like oh, like you might maybe you can do that thing without a lot of oversight. Um, so it's not like I have a, a manager like who I've got to convince of the value all the time. Um, but we do try to look for ways to measure kind of whether or not we're being successful. And, and the biggest measure of our success is are we helping companies become worth more money? You know, it's very you know capitalistic in a lot of ways. You know, it's a venture capital company. Um, so we do measure ourselves largely on do teams make better hiring decisions and do they make better product decisions that actually ship and go out in the wild and are successful? Um, so we do try to kind of draw a line from my involvement with a company through to whether or not they were made some successful decisions. Um, but it's probably, it's a little more amorphous than, than some companies might be about explaining design. And it really bleeds into product a lot in, in the way we work, yeah. Um, so the other question we've been asking people is how their design teams are organized, but you're at a VC fund, so this is a little bit different. Um, but you're a design partner, so how yeah. do you and the other design partners actually work together at GV? That's a great question. Um, so we've got um, a team, it's uh, you know, a bunch of designers, you know, what, four designers, and a full-time researcher, and a design producer. So our design producers helping kind of coordinate everything and make sure we're kind of making the best use of our time. Um, our researcher focuses primarily on research. Um, so he's going off and either coaching researchers in the portfolio or does quite a bit of hands-on research with portfolio companies. Um, and then the, the, the rest of us are all, um, we're all like kind of multifaceted product designers. And it's been kind of interesting because we can all, kind of jump in and out of doing kind of interface type work because we've all done quite a bit of it. Um, but we each have kind of our own kind of um, superpowers. And so we try to kind of focus ourselves, you know, so I probably spend, you know, 30% of my time working on kind of things I specifically can do with the portfolio. So I have, you know, a lot more um, identity experience, for instance, and branding experience uh, than the rest of the designers on, on our team. Um, so I've kind of made that a bit of, a bit more of a focus of mine since joining the team, which has been fun because I never would have really called myself a brand designer before coming to GV, and now I, I feel like I've had the time to kind of create a bit of a process around it, so I feel more confident at it. Um, one of our other designers is more focused on writing, and he was a really, really good copywriter. Um, so that's his primary focus. Um, Braden's been lately focusing on um, 
what it takes to build great design teams and great design culture. So he's focused on that. The nice thing is, is like because we focus on these things, we can kind of bring back what we've figured out to the rest of the team. We're all still growing as designers. And that's, you know, when you talk to designers about kind of what they get out of their jobs, and I get to talk to, you know, probably a couple hundred designers a year about this. Um, it's really interesting that like, you know, beyond the money and influence, like one of the biggest things people are looking for is growth. And it's really cool that after, you know, 20 years of doing design, like still lots of opportunity to learn uh, kind of uh, on this team. So think back to a time when you were less seasoned, less well-known, had a shorter portfolio of work to show. Um, if you're the only designer in a company and your job is to own design, how do you convince the business leaders that design matters? Whew. Um, yeah, it's a hard one. Um, how would I convince business leaders that design matters? A lot of it is about speaking their language, right? Business leaders don't think in terms of aesthetics. They don't think in terms of like, this looks better than it did before. Um, they don't even think in terms of interfaces or even usability all the time, you know? Like this is easier for our customers to use. They think in terms of sales numbers, conversion metrics, um, these kind of fairly hard goals, right? Um, you know, can we bring on more clients? Can we grow our user base? Can we, you know, sell more widgets? Um, so in many ways, I would think to build your credibility, and don't get me wrong, it's not the only language of design, because I do think aesthetic and um, kind of the, um, kind of the, the, the harder to explain parts of design are still important, they're just harder to measure. But I would focus on, to build your credibility, focus on the measurable parts of design, you know, things that are closer to product level. Um, you know, conversion metrics, like improving the numbers on, on uh, you know, a specific feature of your product, and figure out the design that actually gets you there. Um, and then you can start getting into the more, the harder to explain things. You know, stuff like product quality, you know, design quality, you know, fit and finish. These things matter a lot to designers, right? And they should. They're really hard to explain to somebody. And, and you know, again, instead of just focusing on, well, this needs to look better, you have to focus on things like talking about it in terms of brand. You know, and we want to build credibility with our users over the long term. The more loose edges there are in our product, the less we will, you know, the, over time it will be death by a thousand cuts that people will no longer believe that we build credible software and they won't believe in our engineering because right. on the surface, you know, the shingles are falling off the house, mm. right? Um, that's actually a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Um, you know, come up with, with stories like that if you want to convince somebody that the logo needs to be tweaked or the colors aren't right. right. Um, you know, these things to avoid getting into the 40 shades of blue kind of measurement stuff. Yeah. How do you measure and present design results to people in your business? percent and measure design results. Um, I mean, for us, it's very business-driven. Yeah. You know, I, I'm sure all my, I'm starting to sound like a broken record a little bit, but um, the, when we think about, like, the, the results, it's things like, you know, externally working with companies, you know, did the decision we helped them make, you know, six months ago result in a big product change that, you know, they either got good press about, changed metrics, you know, change their business, help them figure out a pricing model problem. You know, we can point to these things and say, hey, you know, six months ago we worked with the CEO, this was their biggest problem, they just you know, made this big change and it worked out predictably as we, we imagined. That's, that's a big success for us. Um, some of the other stuff we do is, is like building the credibility of, of GV as a business. Um, so that's part of the reason we speak at conferences or write articles or, you know, um, you know, we, we partly do it because it's just a good thing to do for the community. We partly do it because it's, you know, good for GV to, to have that kind of role. We can, again, look at kind of, you know, where did, it, you know, where did we get noticed? Where did, you know, you know uh, um, how did that influence whether or not people came in for, you know, being able to recruit them into startups? You know, a designer had heard of us, got in touch. We managed to place them at a startup in a critical role like those types of things are, are really core to GV's success as a, as, a, as a venture firm. So we can end with this last one. 
as the purpose of design continues to evolve, what are some roles and methodologies that you think might start to emerge over the next five years? I like your time frame. Five years is a is the future, but not not the distant future. Um, I think if designers don't squander the opportunity, I think the chance for design to work at the business level is very good. And I think you know the advent of um, you know we're kind of in the golden age of prototyping tools right now. I mean, all of a sudden we went from everything you know taking a long time or having to be in code or um, uh, you know we've got all these great tools available to us now. I think if we go and apply those in the right places, all of a sudden design you know design's been clamoring for the seat at the table for so long, and it worries me that a lot of designers kind of got the opportunity, you know, like the founders believed in this pixie dust called design, yeah. but they don't really know what the value is. And if you ask them, they'll, they'll ask you to do design, right? Um, and I think great designers have this opportunity over the next five years to really fundamentally help businesses make better decisions faster. And if they don't squander that opportunity by working on the wrong things or by not asking the right questions or by not having the humility to like, go out and find answers as opposed to just thinking they're geniuses who can come up with solutions, um, I think design has this, all of a sudden has this chance to really be a core function that businesses just think like, oh, of course I need design because like, I, how else would I know where I'm going? Right. Um, I really hope designers can do that. I hope so too. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Daniel. This thanks. was fun. It's great seeing you guys. Hey, you made it to the end. Congratulations. Thanks for watching the episode. I really, really hope you liked it. If you did like it, please leave us a review on the iTunes store. And by the way, if you have any questions that came up because of the content that we covered with our guests, Go on YouTube, go on Twitter. You can tweet us, you can leave us a comment. We'll get back to you, we'll help you as much as possible. At High Res Podcast. That's the, the screen name or the handle for Twitter, for Instagram, for Facebook. Find us, talk to us, we wanna converse with you. Uh, we're not gonna leave here, by the way, without also thanking our friends at Searle Video. They've been an amazing partner on this entire project. So Searle Video is a creative studio based out of Portland, Oregon. They've helped creative communities tell stories for over 10 years. They've done advertisements, behind the scene footage, um, and documentaries for companies like Google, Slack, XOXO Festival, Adobe, Intel. They're incredible. They've traveled with us through the entire country documenting these stories with our guests. That's incredible. Thank you so much, Searle. Listen, if you're a startup looking to elevate your product, if you're a big company looking to humanize your brand, if you're someone in the creative community who just wants to tell a story, you've got to check out the team at Searle Video. It's searlevideo.com, S-E-A-R-L-E, video.com. Check out our friends at Searle. Thank you so much, guys. You guys have been incredible on this project.